Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of SG Explained. We are back in the virtual studio. Unfortunately, Elliot is still out on sick leave, but we have an exciting guest host today. Before we jump in, we're trying something new by doing overviews for each episode, just so that you can have an understanding of the big topics we're going to be going through. Today, we're actually looking at Islam in Singapore. If you like the overview format, let us know by commenting on the social media platforms that we have. Islam in Singapore is a very, very tricky topic, and Imran is my guest host. He is an old friend of mine. He also practices the faith consistently, and he's been exploring it by talking to just a whole range of people. So having him on the show to be able to provide his insights as an individual, as a person who's been practicing the faith was a really meaningful episode for me. We looked at a couple of key things. The first is that we looked at the history of how Islam came into Singapore and how it evolved, how it's enshrined in our constitution in some ways. Uh, the second thing is the institutions, whether it's movies, whether it's the mosque, whether it's the madrasas, and how they also help to uphold uh, Muslim life in Singapore. And finally, we look at some of the key issues that are relevant to the Muslim community, including extremism and the intersection of public and personal life for people who are practicing Islam. If you want to skip ahead to certain parts, you kind of know whether to go in the middle or towards the end based on what I just shared. But let's just jump into it. Imran has been a friend of mine since we were 13. So that's a good 14 years. I just revealed my age right there. But Imran, welcome to the show. Hey, hi guys. You know, we've been talking about having you on the show for a long time. Yeah, Rovik's always like, oh, when are we going to do a show together? And then I'm like, okay, what topic? But we've never like found a time, right? So finally. <laughs> finally, finally. There's a lot of stuff that we could talk about. Yeah, proficient and a lot of stuff. But I think, you know, when we were discussing stuff that were personal and, and stuff that you were interested in, we realized that actually one area that this podcast hasn't really touched on is the scope of religion. And for a number of reasons. It's, it's a sensitive issue and we want to make sure we do it right. But we thought about Islam as, as something that we want to talk about in the context of Singapore, how it actually influences public life and personal lives of some people. Islam is not like my professional interest, but on the side, it's something that's very close to heart, I suppose, because it's like what I practice and and how um, Singaporean Muslims practice and behave and the issues we face are something that's very impactful towards me and my family and the future, right? So this is something that I suppose I followed over the years, talked about with friends, even non-Muslim friends, right? Just to spar. We've had conversations about about how Islam shapes a lot of people's lives in Singapore as well. And the reason why we're shortlisting Islam as the first topic, who knows what other topics on religion we may do in the future, but the reason why we're choosing Islam is because it's actually one of the religions that's quite heavily intertwined with our history, uh, not just as Singapore the independent nation, but Singapore a society that's kind of lived in here for a long time. Uh, but it's also enshrined in our laws. It's quite unique in that sense. Maybe for people who actually do not know what Islam is, and you know, we we have a broad set of audience, so people who may not know a lot of the religions that exist out there, Islam is actually an Abrahamic monotheistic religion teaching that Muhammad is a messenger of God. It's in the same family of religions in some ways as Judaism, as Christianity. There are some distinct differences. I think. The, the key thing with Islam is that they recognize Muhammad as a messenger. How else would you characterize Islam? Muslims also believe in the prophets that have come to the Jews and the Christians, but we believe that the last messenger after Jesus was uh, Muhammad. 
peace be upon him. And that Muhammad sort of completed the religion and Islam uh, builds a lot from uh, Muhammad's teachings and the Quran, which Muhammad uh, brought. We're not actually going to be talking too much about what Islam teaches. I think that's a super interesting topic that maybe people can find other resources around. But what we're really going to be looking at is how it looks like in Singapore and what's the makeup of people, what's the institutions around it, and maybe some of the trends. Let's do some basic demographics, right? So according to the general household survey that was conducted in 2015, about 14% of Singapore's resident population aged 15 years and over are Muslims. A majority of these Malays are Sunni Muslims. So this was the first question I had right off the bat. Sunni and Shia Muslims, I've heard this term. Actually, actually, Rovik, you made a fairly grievous mistake in just that, that first or rather the second sentence. You said uh, 14% of Singapore's population are Muslims and you said a majority of Malays are Sunni Muslims. I feel that that's a good misconception to correct. Um, so Malays are a race and Muslims are religion. So for example, I'm an Indian Muslim, right? Not all Malays are Muslims. I think that's, that's an important point to note especially in Singapore right people often think that okay as long as you are Malay you are Muslim then if you are Indian and then you are Muslim then people get a bit like oh it doesn't make sense but the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims that's a very good question and so the main difference um, begins just after the death of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him uh, the Sunnis believe that Muhammad's successor should be Abu Bakr the guy who he sort of nominated and then Omar but but the Shias believe that Muhammad's uh, successor should have been Ali who was his um, cousin and, and that it should be through a lineage um, sort of succession. A fragment in, in Arabic is a Shia, right? And so this is why actually this is where the name comes from. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and actually it's called the Shia of Ali, right? Looking at the statistics, about 85% of the world's Muslims are Sunni and 15% are Shia Muslims. So a relatively smaller group of Muslims are Shia. And I think that even though um, we see that this difference is political, right, initially, it has since become even more than that, right? So it impacts theologies and it even has impacted the practices of Sunni and Shia uh, Muslims, right? So there are differences in practice. And I mean, I sometimes, when explaining to friends, I say that it is uh, somewhat how Catholics and Protestants are different, right, in Christianity. And, and you're absolutely right that such fragments or, or denominations, as they call it in Christianity, right, are actually not unique to, to both Islam and Christianity. Even Buddhism has different schools of thought. It's almost a, a pattern in a lot of these religions that you'll have different ways of thinking. And, and that's just how human nature has evolved about the, the strong intertwining between Malays and Muslims and maybe even the confusion between that. I absolutely agree. In fact, I found out that in Singapore, 17% of Muslims in Singapore are of South Asian origin, which probably includes Muslims from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh uh, as well. There are also other adherents from the Chinese, Arab and Eurasian communities. And the majority of Muslims in Singapore are traditionally Sunni Muslims who follow the Shafi school of thought or the Hanafi school of thought. So here's another question, Mark. Imran, what are these schools of thought? Yeah, so um, this is a really interesting topic, right? Well, the schools of thought are actually just that schools of thought right even though over the course of history some adherents of a particular school have decried others and said that you know that's wrong this is wrong that this is right essentially the schools of thought mainly differ in the smaller aspects of Islamic practices you know for example like where the hands should be placed during prayer up to which part of the leg uh, should be washed during ablution and these are like really small sort of fringe 
uh, disagreements in, in general, right? The schools of thought mainly originate from different teachers of Islam, right? So different scholars, and they sort of formed a considerable time after the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So, so it's not something that's that's from early Islam. And in fact, the proponents of the different schools were teachers or students of one another, and they all came at different time points. So it's not like at one point of time you had the four different schools. So what happens was a scholar would come and then he would sort of form his group, right? People would learn from him, and then some of them would go to different parts of the world and teach and then some others would form a different school in a different part of the world. And so the schools of thought really spread very geographically. So you would see um, a lot of Hanafis and some Shafis in India, uh, the Malikis in Morocco, uh, lots of Shafis in Southeast Asia, also because the Arabs sort of came from India and into Southeast Asia. But today, because of the flow of information all around the world, you can find adherents of different schools in Singapore too, not just the Shafi'i. Although, like Rovik said, right, the majority is the Shafi'i school of thought and then some Hanafis. You know, there isn't a requirement to follow a particular school and it's not like people with different schools of thought can't pray together in the same mosque. The differences are really small. I think that's an important point to note. Take away from this is, as we talk about the demographics, it's really a show that even within the Muslim community in Singapore, it's not a monolith, right? There's actually quite a bit of diversity, quite a bit of variance uh, between schools of thought, between the Sunni Shia groups, and that adds flavor to what we talk about when we talk about Islam in Singapore. So Islam was actually spread to Southeast Asia around the 14th century by Arab and Indian traders. And it was only through the Sultan's conversion that a Muslim community was formed in Singapore at the beginning of the 19th century, comprising both South Asians and Arab Muslims. A lot of this that we're getting is actually from online research, but especially this unique paper that I found, Islam and Citizenship Education in Singapore, written by Charlene Tan. Uh, and she basically did a study of actually history and evolution in Singapore. It was interesting because Islamic bureaucracy long formed an integral part of Malay Sultanate since the advent of Islam in the region. The Malacca Sultanate of the 1500s was recorded to have practiced Sharia law, as well as his Johor successor, of which Singapore was a part until 1824. When the British started governing Singapore, however, Sharia law was relegated to the realm of personal law. One thing to note is that, you know, what was before Islam in this part of the world, right? So the Malays were actually mainly Hindus. And that's why if you go to Indonesia, some parts of Indonesia, like I think Bali, and, you know, you still find a lot of Hindus. And that is also why Singaporean Islam is uh, heavily influenced by uh, Hindu culture. So if you go to a Malay wedding, you see they have a um, trace of offering. They have the yellow sticky rice. The, the whole idea of the silat and some of the practices of praying together. And, and that's quite interesting, you know, when we think about it this way, because it's really it really becomes a different form of Islam that we see practiced um, in Singapore. I've heard Sharia law before, and it seems to invoke a lot of different images on the internet. Many people think that Sharia law is like, chopping hands and hits, right? <laughs> essentially. But I mean, Sharia, Sharia in Arabic means uh, the way, right? And essentially, Sharia law is the Islamic sort of way to do things, right? So it's Islamic law on how to practice certain things, right? As deduced from the Quran and, and the, the scriptures. And most of these laws actually have got to do with criminal justice and civil law, right? So it's not like um, the Sharia law means like everybody has to be Muslim, everybody has to pray. That's not what is meant by Sharia law. Sharia law usually uh, refers to a criminal justice system that is practiced according to the Sharia, the Islamic uh, scriptures, or civil law, right? So marriages, business transactions, inheritance. 
all of which is enforced in an Islamic state, right? But Muslims living in a non-Muslim countries, they are supposed to follow the law in their country, except when it pertains to individual issues, right? So for example, I live in Singapore. If uh, someone like robs me, doesn't mean that they sort of are supposed to face Islamic law. No, because um, the criminal justice system, you know, in, in the country is, is what is supposed to be followed. But when it comes to marriage, inheritance, it's individual issues, right? So then we are supposed to follow the Islamic law. Wow. So that that unpacks it a lot and it will help us understand how the law for the Muslim community has kind of evolved to accommodate some of these needs. So first off, when the British were here to facilitate the communication between the British and the Muslims, the Muslims Endowment Board was set up in 1906 and the Mohammedan Advisory Board in 1915 so that the Muslim representatives can negotiate with the British government regarding the administration of Muslim affairs. This is interesting because uh, Muhammadan, right? So this Muhammadan, you sometimes find it when you're reading like old books, um, especially written by the British about Islam, right? They used to call the, the Muslims the Muhammadans because they were like the followers of Muhammad, right? So, oh, wow. Even more fun facts. But I, I thought what was interesting here was that the British, even back then, recognized mostly because the community and the and the society that they were entering into, right, the polity that they were coming into was heavily Muslim orientated, that they couldn't just wipe out the, the system that existed and put in a British system, right? They had to find ways to accommodate and to negotiate. And a lot of that meant uh, recognizing and carving out space for Muslim affairs to, to have you know, some level of, of, of influence. So this continued with the introduction of the Muslim ordinance in 1957 and then the establishment of the Sharia court in 1958, formally placing the Muslims in Singapore under Islamic law for certain key individual issues. And we talked about this in the previous episode, actually the episode about the Women's Charter, because we saw how David Marshall, in charge of the Labour Front party that was in power back then, decided that he needed to find a way to facilitate the marriage and divorce cases that were happening in the Muslim community and the Sharia court was set up. And we'll talk a bit about that later on. Now, the key important part about how the law was evolved for the Muslim community actually comes in the constitution. So when the Republic of Singapore became a newly independent country, it included two provisions relating to the special position of the Malays and the Muslim religion. These are Articles 152 and 153. Articles 152 states that it shall be the responsibility of the government constantly to care for the interests of the racial and religious minorities in Singapore. Interesting. And number two, same article, the government shall exercise its function in such manner as to recognize its special position of the Malays, who are the indigenous people of Singapore. And accordingly, it shall be the responsibility of the government to protect, safeguard, support, foster, and promote their political, educational, religious, economic, social, and cultural interests, and the Malay language. It's super interesting because some people theorize that because of this Article 152, Section 2, the Singapore government actually discourages missionaries from proselytizing the Malay population from Islam to other religions to avoid racial and religious tensions within the Muslim population. And because of the Malay Islamic identity, whereby Malay culture has close and strong identification with Islam. It's quite interesting that this is a part of the constitution, right? Um, to 
one, protect the racial and religious minorities of Singapore, but the other also to sort of give special preference to the Malays, right? In a lot of ways, it recognizes that, hey, there were people who were here before us. In some ways, the transaction that Raffles made with the Sultan and Dunku was basically also in that spirit, right, of, of making sure that the communities that were already there will, will continue to have a place in whatever develops in the future. Because of that strong intertwining between Islam and the Malay population, then Muslim population also has a strong relationship with the constitution as well. Now, this is continued in Article 153, which states that the legislature shall by law make provision for regulating Muslim religious affairs and for constituting a council to advise the president in matters relating to the Muslim religion. And this actually leads to the next part, which is the Administration of Muslim Law Act. In 1966, the Singaporean Parliament, in relation to these articles, right, passed the Administration of the Muslim Law Act. And the Act came into effect in 1968 and defined the powers and jurisdiction of three key Muslim institutions. The Islamic Religious Council of Singapore, also known as Majlis Ugama Islam Singapura, or MUIS for short, uh, the Sharia Court and the Registry of Muslim Marriages. So Amla's uh, an act that's put into the law and it sort of states, you know, marriage law in Islam, divorce law, inheritance, etc. And it's very interesting because it kind of enforces Islamic law by a non-Muslim government onto a Muslim population, right? So one of the big concerns with, with Amla is that based on the law, as long as your IC says that you are a Muslim, when you die, Islamic inheritance law is sort of obligated upon your estate, right? So there's no way that whatever will you write is going to be enforced if it is not in accordance with Islamic law. It's again a continuation of this recognition that the Muslim population in Singapore have this special place. This creates the position of the minister responsible for these institutions and he or she is called the minister in charge of Muslim affairs. I always find it quite interesting, right, because when they announce a cabinet, they will announce all these big positions like minister for finance, minister of trade and industry, and there's always a minister in charge of Muslim affairs. And if you didn't understand the history, you didn't understand the special carve-out for the Muslim community in Singapore, then actually it would be quite striking for you, right? Why is there a specific minister for these affairs? But now this makes sense. Now we understand why there's someone who has to govern the these institutions and, and actually look after uh, the provisions that are there. So let's jump into the different institutions, right? Let's talk a bit about them. So the first institution is MUIS, uh, which I explained was stands for Majlis Ogama Islam Singapura, which in English would be the Islamic Religious Council of Singapore. So after Singapore's independence, the government wanted a central body to govern and administer Muslim affairs. So MUIS was established in 1968 as a statutory board to advise the President of Singapore on matters relating to Islam in Singapore. And MUIS' mission was to broaden and deepen the Singapore Muslim community's understanding and practice of Islam while enhancing the well-being of the nation. Wow, I didn't know this. This is done by setting the Islamic agenda, shaping religious life and forging the Singaporean Muslim identity. It promotes religious, social, educational, economic and cultural activities for the Muslims in accordance with the principles and traditions of Islam as enshrined in the Holy Quran and the Sunnah. Among its principal functions are the administration of pilgrimage affairs, right? So getting people to go for Hajj, 
wants the quota, getting people sign up, uh, deciding who gets to go and who doesn't, uh, halal certification, so the administration of what that includes, the construction and administration of mosques, development and management. So mosques in Singapore are all run by Muiz and the administration of Islamic religious schools um, and Islamic education, madrasas, which we'll talk about um, later. The majlis is headed by a council which comprises of the president of Muiz, the mufti of, of Singapore, uh, also known as the religious leader of Singapore, sort of like the Singaporean Pope and other persons recommended by the Minister in Charge of Muslim Affairs. The Council is appointed by the President of Singapore and since 2009, the Council has been headquartered in the Singapore Islamic Hub located along, along Bradle Road. And I think you can just walk in and they have like tours and stuff. Oh, you can actually walk in. Probably with COVID restrictions, you have to make a booking. But super interesting. And I think we hear about movies once in a while, right? Especially when there's some big saga, like, for example, a restaurant that claims to be halal, but it's actually not, for example. It seems like movies actually has a pretty large influence over the Muslim community in Singapore. Muiz is a very important part of every Muslim's life in Singapore. Uh, Muiz also releases like prayer timing, calendars, right? Announces when Ramadan begins, when's Hari Raya and all this. And these are very important because it's like day to day, right? And halal certification makes it easy for us and also friends like Rovik to decide where we can have dinner at. Absolutely. So let's move on to the next institution, which is the Sharia Court. So we talked a bit about the Sharia Court before, and it actually started in the 1880s when the British colonial authorities introduced the Mahomedan Marriage Ordinance, which officially recognized the status of Muslim personal law in Singapore. Uh, the Sharia Court was basically a successor to this. In 1958, pursuant to the 1957 Muslim Ordinance, the Sharia Court was set up with the jurisdiction to hear and determine disputes pertaining to Muslim marriages as well as divorce cases. The court replaced a set of government-licensed but otherwise unsupervised qadi, who are basically Muslim judges, who had previously decided on questions of divorce and inheritance following either the traditions of particular ethnic groups or their own interpretations of Muslim law. Today, the Sharia court continues to exist as a court of competent jurisdiction with power to hear and determine disputes defined by AMLA. Qadi is a Muslim judge, right? And essentially, uh, why this guy is important is because he sort of solemnizes the marriage. But with the licensing, then, you know, there, there become certain requirements. And I remember when I got married, right, we got the Kadi who was quite easy to get actually but you know it, it comes with a certain set of requirements so one of the requirements is you sign the certificate whereby you also are sort of briefed as to you know what are sort of the criteria in which divorce becomes like if you don't maintain your wife or you are away from her for a certain period of time I suppose these are some of the rules that they put in place just to reduce divorce cases and actually one fun fact about Sharia court uh, when I was in the police force in national service I used to do um, Sharia court duty which sounds very exciting but um, basically what I do is I just uh, wait in the court and then when the judge comes in I, I say bangun which is stand and then everybody stands cool so the Sharia card kind of looks over marriage disputes and divorce but on the other side of it you have the registry of Muslim marriages which is a government agency that registers marriages between couples that comprise of two Muslims so actually, you know, if there was a marriage between a Muslim and someone from another religion, uh, they are registered at the Registry of Marriages as civil marriages instead. Previously, the registration of Muslim marriages as well as divorces were actually conducted under the Sharia court. 
but they were later separated. Appeals and decisions of both the Shah Record and the Registry of Muslim Marriages are heard and determined by the Appeals Board. And unlike movies, the Shah Record and ROMMM are not statutory boards, but they do constitute a part of the Ministry of Social and Family Development. So we talked a bit about the institutions that exist for the majority of the Muslim community in Singapore. But actually, you know, there are a lot of different Muslim organizations, again, because of the diversity of Muslims in Singapore, right? And I thought we can focus a bit on one subsection, which is actually the Shiite organizations. The Shiite community consists of 12 Shiites, Ismailis, and the Daudi Boras. I would say these three are the sort of the biggest uh, Shiite groups that, that are in Singapore. Uh, the differences among the Shiite groups are mostly in terms of which imam they follow, right? So if you remember, I said uh, the Shiites sort of believe that Ali should be the successor after the Prophet, right? Ali, the cousin of the, of the Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him. After Ali would be his son, and after his son would be his son, um, and then his son, right? So, so a, a lineage. But as you can imagine, each of these sons would have more than one son, right? So, so there, so there could be some differences as to which of the imams could be followed. So, the twelve Shiites believe that there were twelve imams, right? Um, like Ali, Ali's son, and then his son and his son. And, and so there were 12 of them and the 12th imam uh, is in hiding and he would come out at the end of the day. So, so that's why they're called the 12 Shiites. So the 12 Shiites in Singapore began with the immigration of the Hoja community from India and a member of the Hoja community spearheaded the founding of the Ja'fari Muslim Association. So the Ja'fari Muslim Association and the Muslim Youth Assembly uh, cater to the 12 Shiites, right? Just in case you're wondering like, oh, I've never heard of 12 Shiites. Um, the 12 Shiites are what most people call the Iranian version of Shiism. And then we have the Daudi Boras, right? So the spiritual leader of the Daudi Boras is Muhammad Burhanuddin, who represents the 21st Imam, right? So, so not 12. The Anjuman Iburhani caters to the Daudi Bora um, community in Singapore. Um, that's the organization. And the Bora traders started settling in Singapore in the 1820s. And the mosque for the Bora community is the Burhani Mosque, which was established in 1829. It has since been rebuilt and is now an 11-story complex comprising prayer halls, function halls, meeting rooms and offices. Rovik, have I ever pointed out to you the Dawoodi Bora Mosque? I don't think so. It stands out quite a bit. I mean, it's an 11-story building and it's along, you can see it along uh, Hill Street actually. And I still remember the first time I prayed in the mosque. I was basically finding a place to pray and then, oh, there was this Burhani Mosque which I had never heard of but it was quite convenient, right? I mean, in town... And it's actually just behind uh, Peninsula Plaza. I remember entering the mosque and, you know, taking my ablution, going to the prayer hall. It was really pretty, you know, the carpet, golden chandelier. But the people I remember looked at me funny and, um, or maybe it was just me imagining it. But they are very interesting because the Daudi Boras dress in a very unique manner. So they cut their beard a particular way. The men wear a hat that is unique to the Dawoodi Boras. Uh, the women are often dressed in uh, floral garbs, right? So so these flowy garbs that are floral often. So if you've seen any of, of them on the MRT or in the neighborhood, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Most of them are Indians um, and they're a very tight community. It's not common for people to sort of convert in, um, you know, uh, in, in inverted commas. And the last group are the Ismailis um, and they are the followers of uh, the Aga Khan. If I remember correctly, the Aga Khan is this rich guy who has a, a network of offices all around the world. And if you do some research, sometimes you come across uh, research done by the Aga Khan Foundation, right? So they actually have a regional representative office in Singapore. I love all of this because I'm learning so much more about a community that 
I just did not know a lot about, right? And when we talked about the Dawoodi Boha Mosque, I actually realized I've walked past it so many times. And I, you know, because I went to Google image and, and see actually where is this mosque. And I walked past it so many times, I just did not know how unique of a culture was actually within that space. And a lot of this stuff, right, whether it's the, the institutions that we talked about or even the smaller community groups and, and spaces that exist for the smaller groups within the Muslim community, it goes to show that actually there's a lot of stuff happening in Singapore with regards to how Islam is being practiced. One of the things that we have to talk about when we talk about Islam in Singapore is the mosques. It's actually quite surprising. There are 72 mosques in Singapore. And actually, all of them, with the exception of one mosque, is administered by Muiz. Imran, you know, you said that all of them are administered by Muiz, but actually there's one that's not. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. Hey, this mosque is interesting, you know, the Masjid Temenggong. It's actually right uh, at the entrance of Sentosa. It's a building with a black roof. I believe the land is still owned by the state of Johor. And it's very interesting because if you actually enter the compound, you can see a cemetery behind. And um, I think it houses the bodies of um, the royalties, the, the old sultans of the, the Temenggong, basically. Do you have to chop your passport when you go into the mosque? No. La. <laughs> That's another fun fact about Singapore, right? That we have a space that is theoretically administered by the state of Johor. So out of the 72 mosques, 23 mosques were built using the Mosque Building and Mendaki Fund, MBMF. You don't need to remember this, but for Muslims, we will always remember this because they deduct $5 from our bank account every month. Not that I'm complaining. Well, not me at least. And Masjid Al-Mawadda, which I believe Leaf is somewhere in Sengkang or Punggol. It's the 23rd MBMF mosque and was officially opened in May 2009. That was the latest mosque basically that was built using the fund. Because for broadcasting, the Islamic call to prayer was turned inwards to broadcast towards the interior of the mosque as part of a noise abatement campaign in 1974. Um, this is interesting because uh, it has become a very sensitive topic for Muslims in Singapore. You know, it's a bit like in Taipusam, they always say like, hey, why cannot play music, you know? And I suppose it's because the mosque is supposed to give the call of prayer, right? The call for prayer is supposed to be, um, you know, more for people outside rather than inside, right? So it doesn't really make sense to turn the speakers inward. The call to prayer is more like an alarm reminder, right? To tell Muslims that the time for prayer has begun so they can start doing prayer in that window. But I mean, in Singapore, you know, we have to make compromises just just because of, you know, our land space and size and multi-religious considerations. It has a lot of urban density. And so the consideration for a call for prayer has to be adapted accordingly, right? So I think I think that is part of what it means to live in Singapore, as you mentioned. Another key feature about how the Muslim community operates in Singapore has to be the madrasas. And madrasas have always been a very curious thing for me because I remember when I was going through school, I would notice that there were a sub set of students who were dressed up in a very different way. You know, they were wearing uh, a bit more of an iconic uh, Muslim garb. And I was always very curious, you know, where are they going and, and why are they not going to the same schools as I am? So madrasas are basically Islamic education that children can uh, receive from a young age. So instead of going to a uh, public school, right, um, they go to madrasas. And in madrasas, they learn uh, English, math, science, whatever you learn in primary school, and they learn um, Islamic knowledge, right? And historically, madrasas were built by Muslim philanthropists to provide Islamic education for Muslim children. 
So the earliest one was the Madrasa al-Sagof al-Arabiya, started off by the al-Sagof family probably in 1912. And um, under the Education Act, each madrasa has its management community uh, committee whose members are appointed by the Ministry of Education in consultation with MUIS. Uh, so there are currently six full-time madrasas and 27 part-time mosque madrasas. So the six full-time madrasas are what I just talked about just now. And the part-time madrasas are like afternoon classes, sort of like catechisms for Muslims, right? Um, so when I was young, I remember like, I think it was Wednesdays where or, or different days of the week. Um, so I think there was a year every Wednesday in the afternoon, I would wear the uniform and go to the mosque for religious class, right? So we sort of learned uh, how to read the Quran, how to pray, etc. A little bit of Arabic. Um, the madrasas also aim to educate students who would go on to study Islam in higher education, right? So they will go on to do degrees in Islam, etc. And, and so they would be able to provide guidance to the community on religious matters. So one important question everybody would be asking is, do these students still have to take the national exam set by the Ministry of Education? Yes, they do. So they do take the PSLE at the end of the primary school and they do take the GCE O-levels uh, for, for secondary and then the A-levels at the pre-university level. But at the same time, there was a big issue a few years back where madrasas were called out. I mean, if you can imagine, right, um, most students in PSLE, let's say they take four subjects, English, math, science, mother tongue. But madrasas, as you can imagine, they would have additional subjects, right? Like Arabic, Quran, etc. I mean, kids already struggle with four subjects. Can you imagine if they have eight subjects? Yeah, school is hard, man. It'd be even harder for them. And, and so um, it used to be the norm. I mean, my friends in madrasas, a lot of them used to struggle and used to do badly in PSLE. So it was a thing where madrasas students would do badly at PSLE. But I think uh, MUIS and MOE wanted to alleviate this issue. And so they really sort of crack down on madrasas and sort of help them to, to improve and help them to get their students to, to perform. And so what this means right now is that in order to join madrasas, students have to really like perform well and they have to keep up a good grade. Otherwise, uh, they may have to sort of move out into public school. So that's the full-time madrasas, which are the six schools that we that you talked about just now. The part-time madrasas, on the other hand, they don't have to go through PSLE and, and all this, right? So this is the afternoon kind that I attend. Yeah, you have to do the PSLE, but in your regular school. Yeah, correct. A big reason for Muslims to send their children, especially the girls to madrasas, is to allow them to wear the headscarf, right? Um, which is especially important when, when their daughters come of age, right? They need to cover themselves appropriately. And, and so a lot of um, Muslims that I knew, you know, they used to send their daughters to madrasas just so that they could be attired. Um, as, as they saw fit. We've taken a bit of a journey here, right? We started with understanding how Islam came to Singapore, right? Through the traders. We understood how it carved a space for itself, how it's a protected space in, in some ways through the legislation. And then we explored the institutions that happened. But coming to today, coming to 2021 right now, we know that the topic of Islam is much more complex. And the Muslim community in Singapore is also facing questions and, and, and debates on all fronts about actually some of the stuff that's happening globally. So I thought it would be incomplete for us to, to close this episode without talking about some of these issues. A lot of it has to do with this concept of Islamic revivalism, right? And, and again, we took a lot of this from the paper that, that I mentioned before, where a number of different writers have noted the phenomena of Islamic revivalism in Southeast Asia and even in Singapore. This is evident in the attire 
diet, religious observances, and social interactions, where there's a strong focus on Islam and, and influencing how people act. There's an admittance even by Islamic religious teachers in Singapore that a minority of Muslims in Singapore have been sympathetic to extremist arguments, right? And this includes arguments forwarded by the Jama Islamia or the JI, which is an extremist Islamic group in Southeast Asia back in the 2000s, early 2000s. They believe uh, incorrectly that the Singapore government is opposed to Islam, the Muslims in Singapore are oppressed, and that Muslims should not mix with non-Muslims. And of course, we know that to not be true because we've talked a bit about some of the provisions and legislative affordances that are given to the Muslim community, right? Very fear-mongering. La. It's just like, you know, oh, we are uh, what they always say, red dot in a sea of green. That paints some context, right? Because again, if we're bringing it back to Singapore. The idea is that Singapore is a very clearly multi-religious, multi-racial country. In a region that may not be so, right? While there may be diversity in some ways, the governments that be, the polities that be, may not enforce or may not embrace multi-religious and multiracial attitudes, right? And so in Singapore, in a lot of ways, it's important for us to allow different communities to carve out space and to be able to celebrate what what is good about those communities. But on the other hand, you know, when extremism starts to come in and starts to endanger lives, I think that's where... Uh, we've seen actually in Singapore very well that it's not just Singapore at large, but especially the Muslim community rising to the occasion and saying this is not uh, what represents us. Yeah, and that, that brings us nicely to the first challenge that we want to talk about, right? That faces uh, Muslims, which is the threat, the threat of religious fundamentalism. So this was felt most acutely in 2001, right? Early 2000s again, when they arrested a bunch of JI terrorists for attempting to commit violent acts against Western embassies and Singapore key points. Former Senior Minister Lee Kuan Yew explained that it was peer pressure from the Middle East that convinced Singapore Muslims to join the JI to fight for all the oppressed Muslims worldwide. And, you know, when, when this happened, there was a conflict of sorts, right, between, the, uh, between a small group of Muslims in Singapore about whether they should be loyal to to Singapore or they should be loyal to their religion, right? Which would kind of cross boundaries. And it also had a lot of implications for interreligious harmony. So there was a lot of talk, a lot of chatter. Minister in charge of Muslim affairs back then, Yaakov Ibrahim, noticed that certain recent events have affected trust and confidence levels between the various communities. And former Prime Minister Gochok Tong highlighted that there were irrational fears among Muslims and non-Muslims in the wake of arrest of these people. It really sets the tension back then of of when some of these arrests were happening, some of these terrorism events were happening. Early days, you have to remember, of, of terrorism, kind of championed by Al-Qaeda and JI and all this kind of stuff. But actually, what is the, what is, uh, the influence of Islam in Singapore? Lee Kuan Yew is definitely right. And he's alongside other experts who say that there is this feeling of disenfranchisement, right? Like, which sort of nudges towards these militant groups. Like, they'll say, oh, look, Palestine's being oppressed, Muslims all over the world being oppressed, like, go fight for their freedom. I mean, you know, every minority has their challenges. But it's only when there's sort of this platform to propose this, like, oh, golden solution. Oh, okay, you know, let's go fight them. Uh, let's kill, you know. I mean, it's very fairy tale like you know, like, we're going to form an army, we're going to defeat them. I mean, and this is why it sort of heals to a certain group of people, right? And and that's definitely a challenge, especially now in the day of ISIS. You know, they have a lot of propaganda that's going out there and that's sort of uh, targeting people who are disenfranchised, right? Unless we think that this is a, a settled down issue, right? It's actually not. Uh, it, it comes back and again. 
And this happened quite recently, in fact, when there was a spate of terrorist attacks in France after the magazine Charlie Hebdo republished a series of caricatures depicting the Prophet Muhammad on September 1st, right? So, and the Ministry of Home Affairs actually published in a press release in November saying that they were clamping down on people uh, to preempt copycat attacks. A majority of those being investigated attracted security attention as they had supported the beheading of the school teacher Samuel Patti. One of these arrests was 26-year-old Bangladeshi construction worker Ahmed Faisal, who had prepared himself for armed violence by watching firearm-related videos online. The Ministry of Home Affairs noticed this, found him out, arrested him to preempt any copycat attacks. This was done together with 22 other foreigners, including 15 Bangladeshis and one Malaysian, who had all been repatriated after the ISD completed its investigation into them. This, again, brings it back to the fact that this is an ongoing issue that we need to continue being vigilant, uh, especially the Muslim community has, has shown itself to do this a lot. One of the key things that it's done that I thought was very cool uh, was they established the Religious Rehabilitation Group, which is an organization of voluntary Islamic scholars and teachers who assist in the religious rehabilitation and counseling of radicalized and self-radicalized individuals. And this was formed in 2003, again, early days of extreme Islamic terrorism back in the day. Its initial mission was to rehabilitate detained members of the regional terrorist group Jemaah Islamia. And it's since expanded to provide counseling and financial support for families of the detainees to prevent further radicalization. Because, you know, if you take away the the breadwinner of somebody's families, it may inspire other family members who may be impoverished, who may become dependent on some of these instruments to then become radicalized themselves. And now they've done outreach to wider communities to dispel misinterpretations of Islamic concepts and prevent them from falling under the influence of extremists terrorist ideology. The second challenge that Islam in Singapore seems to be facing is the difficulty in separating the public sphere from the private sphere. Religious believers and groups are inclined to share their religious views on national matters in the public domain. The way showed that 6 out of 10 want the government to consider religious beliefs when making policy. Um, and this is unsurprising since national policies and debates on such issues such as stem cell research, organ donation and casinos are intricately linked to moral and religious considerations. For example, Muslims are not allowed to gamble. What's important here, right, is that while there are certain requests and and features that are unique to the Muslim community, this whole issue about religion and politics is not 100% 100% unique to the Muslim community, right? It is, is something that the Christian groups also advocate for and sometimes and other religious groups. And the, the government has always had to reinforce that politics has to remain secular. We can consider the views of religious groups, but the decision has to be made for a diverse and represented community. Definitely going to be difficult, right? I mean, as much as we can say we want to separate it, there are definitely going to be like issues that it's sort of linked, you know, I mean, um, so for example, the casino issue, right? So the government wanted to build a casino and there was an anti-casino lobby, including MUIS, which publicly add its stand. And and so it's inevitable that there would be, you know, certain crosses or, or you know, into each other's boundary, right? And I think that's exactly the point about Islamic revivalism, right? It's how much of a flex does it want to put on the rest of society? And, and there was actually a very recent debate in parliament, right? So in parliament, they were talking about the role of religion and politics. What 
Congress Party MP Faisal Manap was put in the hot seat after he said that he did not quite agree with keeping religion and politics separate. And I, and I think it's important to, to really pick into what he says because he's actually saying something quite specific. Speaking in Malay on changes to the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, which we talked about actually in one of our previous episodes, uh, he said, Islam encompasses all aspects of life, including politics and the way to practice politics. So while he agrees that religion should not be used to gain political advantage, he could not see a reality where he could separate religion from politics. I think this is quite a unique look at it because what law minister... Keshan Mugam was trying to say was that it's not about using religion for the benefit of politics. In fact, quite specifically, the idea was that when you make decisions, you cannot put aside your religious belief, but you must take into account everybody else and act neutrally. So the position that you take has to be the, for the benefit of all Singaporeans and not just for your own religious community. So I think this is like, you know, it's a tension space that is still ongoing, right? It's definitely not resolved from that session. And as you mentioned, Imran, uh, it's a, it's a tension space that will continue to influence different communities as they try to really embody, you know, the identity that they have in that religious space, right? And how does that interact with their public life as well? This exchange was very interesting for, you know, my friends and I. And the topic itself is something that's a very um, hot topic. It's a bit of a red herring to say, um, to mix politics with Islam or not, or that Islam encompasses politics. Because remember I said earlier that uh, earlier on that Islam has laws to do with everything, right? To do with marriages, business transactions. So yes, of course it has laws about, or at least guidances, even in politics but this doesn't mean that Muslims should sort of enforce these um, ideas or thoughts onto non-Muslims right one of the big issues is the Tudong issue right or maybe for the listeners right what is the Tudong issue right so the Tudong issue is I suppose most of us understand it as people in uniform like a policewoman um, nurses in uniform in, in public hospitals they aren't allowed to wear the headscarf right which is nobody knows why and I think a friend once told me that he asked um, Muiz and then they didn't have an answer either. So I mean, personally, I'm always waiting for, you know, the new Muiz leadership or the um, new Islamic Affairs Minister to sort of help us understand better, you know, like why why does this unwritten law exist, right? Um, why can't nurses wear headscarves in uniform um, when this is what's done in other countries. So in the Tudong issue, there's this issue that sort of seems like it's law, but it's not written. Uh, we're all trying to understand it. And I suppose we don't want to mix politics with, you know, like religion. But at the same time, it's sort of inevitably gets mixed and it's a matter of sort of trying to separate it and putting it you know um, like the minister said you know above political interests right and here's the thing right in this conversation we're not advocating for any one position about how religion and politics need to interact I think at the ground level we're just observing and asking questions but I think what we're trying to do here is to really call out that it's it's complex right and especially with with Islam especially because of the relationship that Islam has from the very beginning right with Singapore's identity, the fact that it's enshrined in the constitution, the fact that there are laws that, that provide provisions for it, then how does it continue forward? How does it continue to interact with politics? How does it continue to interact with society? Uh, that's not a done deal. There's still a lot of question marks, as you mentioned. Stuff like the Tudong issue will continue to be some of these areas in which questions of how Islam operates in Singapore Will continue to be raised. Maybe that's that's what makes it unique. Maybe that's an opportunity for us to craft a uniquely Singaporean response to things. Uh, but it also represents some of the key 
uh, needs and worries about the Muslim community in Singapore. And I'm sure there are many others that we that we aren't able to go through. But between extremism and some of these ideas about the influence of religion and politics, I think we can start to get a sense of actually these are some of the big things that that the community needs to deal with in Singapore. This was a jam-packed episode. We touched on a lot of different things, but I think it was a great one-on-one for anyone who's interested in Islam in Singapore. We can definitely see that there's been a lot going on and a lot uh, coming up for it, right? And Imran, I'm really happy that we managed to have this chat. We've had a lot of chats about interreligious issues, uh, cross-religious issues, but this was a really good opportunity for me to learn a lot about your culture, your religion, and how you practice your faith in Singapore. And there's a lot I learned just by doing the research for this, and I'm really glad I got the opportunity to do this episode with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I mean, we talked a lot about this topic, but we've never talked about like the history and like you know, and those things help us to appreciate uh, you know the situation of Islam in Singapore even better right and understand the challenges and sort of you know how we move forward and how do we appreciate the challenges that Muslims face in Singapore on that note thanks again for coming on the show and for everyone at SG Explain you know continue to share subscribe like our podcast and whatever platform you're listening to us if you would like to support us you can actually click on the link that is at in the description for each episode it says anchor.fm slash support uh, and you can actually support us because uh, we would love to know that we are benefiting you and creating value for you and finally uh, if you have ideas for the next episode please let us know we would love to know what we should talk about next 